Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence, and I have two incredible guests for you this week, as I often bring incredible guests, but hey, those are the ropes. And the first one is Dr. Maitha Alhassan. You may know her because she's often on TYT hosting. She's a race and social justice professor, also a Hollywood writer. And as we all know, TYT host, Maitha, thank you so much for joining us. I can't believe we get to have this conversation together. I know, and also we got the black like tank. We didn't metal. plan this. No, we, we didn't, didn't plan this at all. This is not like educated woman of color, secret society gear at all. It's just how we roll. And <laughs> I wanna roll into the topics to discuss today just because I love your mind and I want to really have these discussions and conversations because I know you enlighten. Um, let's talk about masks. It shows that 16% of US adults are hardly ever or if ever have worn a mask inside of a store or a business. And recently we had a 35 year old man in Pennsylvania essentially pull a gun and shoot up a grocery store clerk as well as turn it on seven officers in a shootout later all over him not wanting to wear a mask. And his lawyer of course said he's just not handling the pandemic well. We've noticed from this trend, it seems like it's oftentimes a lot of white people being in these altercations and engaged in violence and this pushback. Why do you think that is the case? We saw the stark difference between how organizing looked like and for what end. At the capitals of most of these states in Michigan, even in California, when you had people in riot gear, citizens responding to mask orders and opening up the economy and barging the capital as well. But then when you had Black Lives Matter protests, which most of the folks there were wearing masks, they were largely just rallies, basically, there was no weapons. And for some reason, this administration decides that they need to unleash um, undercover cops, undercover patrol in Portland and parts of the Northwest to go after those folks. And so what we're seeing is a really deep fear um, of white folks of the idea of being policed or having any sort of infringement on what they perceive to be their legitimate rights. But we can take that a theoretical step further. And in America, there's this concept or this dual concept of negative freedom and positive freedom. So what a lot of these white folks who adhere to this philosophy of libertarianism like to say is that any of this tramples on their freedom. Like wearing a cloth mask for some reason feels incredibly oppressive, more oppressive than the idea of dying disproportionately from a virus. Um, and so that is, that is something that's rooted in what is called negative freedom, which is do not infringe on my rights. Um, and as long as a government does that, then they are threatening my liberty. So that's how it's framed for them. But the only problem is, like, if you really believe in that, then you would be the ones who would support the defunding of police. You would be the one who would be supporting the defunding of any national or state security response. But ironically, they don't have a problem with those things. They just have a problem with being told that they have to wear a mask. And the other funny part of this story is that they will side with the rights of small businesses 
to relegate or sorry to regulate who can come in and it's their right, uh, the right of a cake manu- a cake store to be able to refuse service from queer folks for a cake with um, with two married men. They're okay with that, but tell somebody if you enter my store you have to wear a mask. Then somehow it's a problem. Yeah, and it seems you know and. Definitely not saying that it's only white people. It's just the videos that have gone viral and these stories that have come out, it's all seem to be very similar. And we've also seen a lot of pushback coming from places like Orange County um, and the areas down there that tend to be predominantly white as well. And I think you make a really good point in terms of, um, you know, I think you said negative freedom versus positive freedoms. But I also want to kind of dive into the fact that. You know, why necessarily ride to violence and to go yeah. to this level of, I'm, I don't know necessarily if this 35 year old man had any kind of history in any way, but to the point of violence, it just seems so absurd. The woman in Target ripping the mask and the, all the cloths down. Why feel the need to go that far? Well, also my question is, why is that kind of violence acceptable? And why is that kind of violence not repudiated? Because here we have a deep paranoid suspicion of any black protest turning violent when it never does. And it's usually the cops that are the ones that make it violent, throwing the tear gas first, being provocative first, shooting with rubber bullets. But then when white folks do it, it's framed as defense, right? And so instead of it being framed as these are criminalized bodies walking around, they are the ones who are defending their freedom. So here we can understand how racialized it is. It's it's sadly really about how is your body racialized? And for a long period of time, there has been work towards racializing black folks as being threatening and their bodies being threatening. And to just clearly wrap this up, When Darren Wilson, who was accused of murdering Michael Brown, was asked if he saw Michael Brown carry a weapon, he said yes, his body. And so that tells you everything you need to know about the divergence between how black folks and white folks, and then there's a whole spectrum in between, but that's a whole nother conversation, are treated when it comes to violent responses. Absolutely, and kind of again, like you said, this thought that your body is a threat. Because essentially, when we look in this bit larger, like COVID 19 kind of um, ideology of the fact that your body is a walking threat if you have this virus and don't know about it. So, you know, as a people who've always been considered a threat, it's I'm kind of used to this thought of others being somewhat fearful of me. And mm-hmm. maybe um, the white population is somewhat acclimating to that place. Uh, who knows? Uh, I don't know, but I do know that you are doing incredible work outside of just the professor element. And you are bringing your specialty to Hollywood. You are writing for Rami, and that is now an Emmy nominated show, already has a Golden Globe and a Peabody. What are you doing on that show? Because we know you are definitely changing the game. It's such an interesting transition growing up in Los Angeles, where people who are born and raised here don't really interact with the industry to the degree people expect us to. And somehow I fell into doing this Hollywood work of starting out as the consultant with the red pen on the scripts. 
And then at a certain point, I spoke to Rami, he's a friend of mine. That's how I initially was introduced to this opportunity to be part of the Hulu show you mentioned, Rami. And I said, you know, it's it's interesting being able to give my notes, but I really want to develop story because that's at the heart of how we shift and change narratives about us. And I don't want to just come in and say, that's wrong, do it this way. But what are the motivations of a character? What are things we've never seen before? How can we pull this together in a season and an arc of a season? So I came in season one as a creative advisor and season two, I got pulled into the writer's room, which is such an amazing experience. I tell folks that it feels like I got paid to take a master class in writing. <laughs> and have you found that, you know, because you come from a professorial circle and, you know, doctorates and books and eloquence, have you found that the writing technique and style is totally different? Oh, absolutely. I'm trained to deconstruct stereotypes, tropes, political analysis. And then here I am being asked to construct, to build something. That's a whole new skill set. But I'm also pulling back and realizing Rami and I were worked on a script in season two. And he looked at me in some of the dialogue and he said, Natha, this is not how real people talk. This sounds like <laughs> it sounds, sounds like a kind of conversation between me and you, I'm sure. Right, obviously. But it also sounds like somebody who is sitting on a panel at an academic conference waxing poetic on migrant children at the border. How would you talk if you were in a situation, spoiler alert, in a tow truck where your life is being threatened? You might not be the most eloquent and you might be driven from a place of emotion. So what does it look like when real people are talking and in a situation that is emotionally taxing and pushing you to the edge? So yeah, I had to take off the analytical professorial brain and also the political commentator to say, what is the kind of grace I would give this moment and give this character? Oh my God, even just hearing you talk about it sounds so powerful. And that's okay, I believe someday you're gonna be able to write a show that just focuses on brains sitting there and expounding. And I love it and I can't wait to watch it. But since we don't have very much time, what are you doing next? Ooh, yay, thank you for asking. I am working on a couple books. I'm working on a couple of scripted, unscripted projects I can't really talk about. So I'm in incubation phase. And I hopefully I'm gonna be doing a lot more conversations on the Young Turks as well. Hi, well, I look forward to that, my friend. And can you please tell everybody where they can find you? www.maytha, M-A-Y-T-H-E, Alhassan, it's also down there, uh, .com, if you don't know how to spell my name. And then at Maytha Alhassan on Twitter and Instagram, follow me, talk to me. I'm a nerd, I love hearing your questions. You are the best. Thank you so much for coming on, Maytha. Thank you for having me. And next up, we have another guest who is a tenants rights litigator and she knows everything. She's from Chicago. The LNT game is her game over a decade. She secured the largest landlord tenant mold class action settlement in the history of Illinois. Also, she just transitioned away from being the legal director of Open Communities as a nonprofit clinic that served thousands of tenants in Chicago fighting landlords. Please welcome in Miss Cheryl Ring. Thank you so much for having me, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining me because you know what? You know everything. You are a historian. I've known you for a while. I've loved you forever. 
And I'm so excited to have you here because the issue of evictions is really on people's radars now, where we know that some 23 million people nationwide are at risk of being evicted. And that's per the Aspen Institute. And you know what? People say they've never seen anything poised so significant in terms of the loss that will be out there for housing. How bad will this eviction issue actually be? It depends on how willing we are to stop it. Um, and it really is something that we have control over. What, one of the things I tell people a lot about eviction statutes, every single one of them, all 50 of them are Jim Crow laws. They, most of them used to be called forcible entry and detainer acts. Forcible entry because it allows you to forcibly enter someone else's land and detainer because then you can keep it. And we adopted this from the British common law. It was actually the, the laws that were originally passed to allow colonizers and settlers to take land away from indigenous people and keep it. And then it was repurposed after the Civil War to allow for white people to take the land of black sharecroppers and for white men to take the land of white widows. Um, and so what you have is it's a law that was designed to target particularly women of color. And every year since then we have evicted en masse women of color. Every year in the 21st century, we have evicted more than 1 million people. And in the entire 21st century, mainland Europe still hasn't evicted a million people combined. So the reality is we have the ability to stop this. This is not a crisis anywhere else that COVID has struck. And it is a crisis here only because our laws are written in such a way as to allow it to be one. Wow, geez, that's mind blowing, especially the fact that it's essentially meant to and actually targets women of color, me being one myself, it's not that awesome. But also too, we see that COVID, you know, the ongoing pandemic is targeting a lot of black and brown people. And the thought that they could potentially be unhoused in mass numbers amid this pandemic, I guess is the reality and the thought here that it's actually going to end up these evictions it's actually gonna end up impacting more black and brown people? Oh, absolutely. Um, if, if you look at a book that Matthew Desmond wrote a few years ago called Evicted, or some of the studies that have been done in cities like Chicago, Milwaukee, Atlanta, Washington DC, New York City, San Francisco. Overwhelmingly eviction statutes by design target black women and indigenous women and Latinx people tend to be next right after that. Um, and the result of that is that you have ghettos and slums. One of the reasons that we have housing segregation today is because an eviction doesn't come off your credit ever. It's not like a bankruptcy that comes off after seven years. And even there's this urban legend that three years ago, the, the credit reporting agencies got together and removed evictions from credit reports. But really all they did was they created a separate agency so that that they could collect more money from checking a different credit report to see if someone's been evicted. And one of the interesting things about people who do work like this, like I do, who have been representing tenants is, we have been arguing for years now, if and when there is a public health crisis. And what you're going to have is instead of evictions, forcing people into slums because slumlords are the only landlords, predatory landlords are the only landlords who will rent to people with evictions on their record. If you have any kind of public health crisis, you're not going to be putting people in slums. You're not just gonna be having segregation, you will have mass homelessness. But the problem is this is not an issue that people in power think is problematic. Because if you look at the people who push back against eviction moratoria, it's not just landlords, it's also large banks and the for-profit prisons. And the reason that for-profit prison complexes 
push back against this is because the leading indicator about whether a young black man will go to prison is whether his mom was evicted. Because historically, according to the data, what will young men do if they see their mom is facing eviction? They're going to go and try and get money to get the rent paid. And so if you if you work for a for-profit prison, you want evictions to happen because this fuels your business. If you are a large bank, you want evictions to happen because it fuels your business. And so even where corporate landlords, even where small landlords stand to lose money as a result of this, the largest players in the economy for the prison system, large banks make money off of this. And that's why we haven't seen a large effort to push back against the coming eviction storm. Wow, all right then. Oh wow, that just blows my mind as you do all the time. And you know, to play devil's advocate, let's talk about these landlords. You know, from a financial standpoint, I, you know, I leverage my loans and I give out money as a bank, you know, expecting a certain amount of return. And so if landlords don't get paid and then they can't pay their mortgage and so on and so forth, won't that be bad for the economy too? Oh, it will be bad for the economy, but it's great for banks. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you look at how banking loans are set up for landlords, banks give out different kinds of mortgages for different kinds of borrowers. And increasingly what we're seeing in the industry is banks giving out predatory loans to landlords of color. If you remember the housing crisis, one of the things that large banks did was they preyed on the attempts of black and brown families to build generational wealth through home ownership, through predatory loans. And now they're doing the same thing with respect to black and brown landlords. So I have clients who I've seen where they have mortgages with an assignment of rents that requires them to pay the rent as it comes in to the bank in addition to payments. There are clauses that say that if at any point you are letting the property stay empty, you are not allowed to do that. You are not allowed to provide rent to a rent break to your tenant because then the bank can default you. I've seen I've seen loans where the banks put in provisions that say that if at that it because you are doing this as a rental property, you are exempting yourself from the Consumer Fraud Act, from TILA, you're waiving usury laws, and these are targeted at either areas, it's a new kind of reverse redlining, either areas of a lot of black and brown people or black and brown landlords. And so a lot of landlords are put in this situation. Even white landlords who rent property in black and brown areas where they can either lose the building by not accepting, by, by giving their tenant a break, or they can lose the building by giving the tenant a break and the bank comes in and takes it for lack of payment. And it always goes back to these large banks. And yes, there are a lot of landlords who are refusing to work with tenants just because they are slumlords. And this goes back to what I was talking about before with the looming public health crisis. But it's also very true that banks have set this up for a while as a new way to get money. Because by the time a bank has filed a foreclosure, they've usually already recovered three or four times the amount of the loan through insurance, investments, and other payments. Wow, Oh my goodness. Well, it doesn't sound like we have that good of a future ahead of us. And you know, Trump, I believe he said on Monday that if it comes to stopping evictions, he'll do it himself. And I'm sure we cannot expect him to do much of anything. But since we don't have that much time left, I'd love to also tap into your incredible side hustle, being a sports writer. And I know you love baseball. You write on baseball often. And unfortunately, we're seeing a number of teams, you know, come down with that thing we call COVID-19 and the players and the problem. What do you see for MLB's future and how this COVID-19 situation should be handled, especially in light of the NBA bubble? 
You know, what's interesting about Major League Baseball, and I saw someone on Twitter mention this today, is it how MLB is handling the pandemic really mirrors how the United States is. We are we're not going to do a bubble. We are just going to pretend everything is normal. Um, and you can't just, it doesn't work that way. And I understand the need of people, and I get this myself, I'm a huge baseball fan, for that mental health, for the help with your mental health in the middle of a pandemic. But the reality is we cannot and should not pretend that what's going on right now is normal. When we have 23 to 28 million people facing eviction at this point, when we have about 30% of Americans last week couldn't afford their food. This is a real issue that we are facing. And I worry that what we are doing when we are playing sports, we are creating a distraction from the very real threats to our society. And so I wrote an article for Beyond the Box Score last week in which I argued that we shouldn't actually be watching baseball. Because it just, first of all, it distracts from the very real problems that we're facing as a society right now. It is a way for us to pretend that things are normal when they're very not. And also because, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but with the number of players who are coming down with COVID, and you're not, it's not just the players, it's the bus drivers, it's the attendants, it's the hotel personnel, it's everybody who works in the, 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 the lack of a bubble around baseball, somebody's going to die. And what we are watching is people who are exposing themselves to a viral plague in slow motion. And there's a questionable morality about that. Oh, Absolutely, questionable morality indeed, especially when it's largely probably to generate revenue. Because I also don't really know yes. how many people are watching baseball, but eh, to each his own. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, for coming on. Just kind of want to wrap this up by asking you where people can find you. They can find me on Twitter at ring underscore Cheryl or email me Cheryl with an S not a C at CherylRinglaw.com. You are fantastic. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for joining us, enlightening us and entertaining us. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Adrian.